0: Hi, guys. I wanted to hop on here really quick and give a trigger warning. Um, This episode centers entirely around sexual assault, and that can be really really re-traumatizing for some survivors. Um, Dallas and I both talk about our experiences and our trauma a little bit. So if that's something that you know is going to trigger you, feel free to skip this episode. There's also talk about rape specifically, about racism and racial trauma, about general trauma and PTSD, about religious trauma, sexual abuse, and BIPOC assault and trauma. So if any of those topics might be a little bit too much for you, you are more than welcome to skip this episode or come back to it at another time. But other than that, I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. So today we have Dallas from Survivor's Toolbox with us, and we are actually going to be talking a lot about sexual assault. So um, how are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm doing pretty good today. Um, it's starting to get sunny here in New York, so that's exciting. It's
0: sunny here as well, which I'm in Seattle, so... It's, Very rare. Like it's, yeah, it's pretty rare that those two climates line up. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted to chat with you about... Um, Your account and your platform, and um, even a little bit of your personal background and why you got into this, and what started Survivor's Toolbox and what is keeping it going.
1: Yeah, where do you want me to start with? I guess I can give a background. Yeah, wherever
0: you want to start, wherever
1: you want to start. Great. Um, So Survivor's Toolbox started about. I, yeah, four, four years ago now, like right before the Me Too movement happened, um, I was working with a group of other advocates and we were trying to figure out, obviously after Trump's election, a lot of people were starting to realize that um, assault like wasn't taken very seriously. So in this group, we were trying to figure out how to provide information to survivors and to people who aren't survivors to kind of help them understand what that experience is like and we came up with survivors toolbox as a web series and that group i think after me too happened um the the world around advocacy changed a lot and that wor- that group kind of disseminated and people started doing work in different areas but i kept it going um, and. It's meant to be a platform to help highlight information that survivors might not always get about the aftermath of assault, um, a lot of people of, of sexual assault. And I think a lot of people work on preventative measures and are we kind of work at it from the perspective of this, unfortunately, is something that's probably going to maintain a part Be a continue to be a part of our society um, until huge changes in the patriarchy are made. Um, So, we're our stance on it is to help people make educated and informed decisions about their own futures after an assault.
0: Yeah, and I'd love to even touch on the title because that was what drew me to you guys specifically. with what you just said that there is a lot of preventative care but there's not a lot of aftercare or steps to follow and that was something that in my personal experience I was like okay what the fuck do I do now because I I didn't I didn't know how to even take a next step and I think a lot of people kind of face that almost like paralyzing fear where it's just like that I don't, I, I know I could go to therapy, but like, mm-hmm. what do I do here? Um, so the specifically the term toolbox, that was the, um, I went to a support group after my personal assault and that was what changed my perception of everything regarding healing. Because I, my therapist said, well, our goal here is to give you tools to put in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, tools. I don't have any of those. <laughs> like maybe that's why this is so difficult. Um, so how do you kind of approach that? And are you aiming more at coping mechanisms? Are you kind of doing a holistic approach? Or what is your like passion point in the realm of tools, I guess?
1: hmm Yeah. So for us, and just as a disclaimer, my the tools that I do provide mostly come from my own experience into talking to other people. Um, I'm not a therapist and i'm not even really a trained advocate like uh, there's a lot of people who work through rain and get trained advocacy but a lot of the information that i share is just based on my personal experiences and experiences of other people i know who are going through the healing process but i think we try to tackle a lot of different issues um one uh, series that we just did was on going back to the gynecologist and that was something that I hadn't, literally, hadn't even thought of until I had something like a lot of emotion yeah. come up when I went to the gynecologist, and I was like, "Oh my god, no one ever even tells you this after an yeah. assault that like that's going to be really triggering and really like intense." Um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of it is kind of just responding to my own lived experience and recognizing where there is a need for more information. Um, and there is like a ton of information online now and what we try to do is work to condense that information so that it's all in one accessible space that's really easy to find and giving information out in a way that's um, not overwhelming because like when I start going through these articles it's like you know, there's like thousands of articles on all of this stuff now at this point, which is amazing because those are resources that weren't there. Exactly. Like it can be really overwhelming. So we really try to tackle a lot of different issues. Um, the next one that we're going to be talking about will be like going to the police, which I know, um, is, is a really challenging topic to talk about because it's, it's really layered and um so that's kind of more concrete information where other other tools are more about healing um yeah
0: it's more but, practical yeah it's coming at it from like a practical lens and mm-hmm. i think that someone's mowing their lawn so deepest apologies if there's going to be like a mowing lawn white noise in the background but um <laughs> i'm at my parents house for the weekend so we had to do a little bit of a makeshift uh setup here but Yeah, that's, there's a lot of accounts and this is not to um, put those accounts down because I think that everything has its place, but there are a lot of um, accounts and even resources that focus on, you know, try yoga or like Mm -hmm. try working out or try to do which I think can all have really great benefits. But I think when you're in the depths of it, especially at the beginning when you're mm-hmm. you're just starting to process. And that might not be like right after your assault. That could be 10 years after your assault when you're finally mm-hmm. ready to feel like you can unpack it. But that first step, like you mentioned, I, I Googled because I was like, I don't know what to do. And it is yeah. very overwhelming where you've got, even like you've got articles from fucking Cosmo and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know if I should trust you. Like, I I don't, I don't know who I should listen to here. And then I've got, like, even um, talking, like, in classes. I was in college and having, like, you know, peer-reviewed journals. And it's like, okay, this is way too much information. And I saw a lot of my healing out via Instagram because Mm -hmm. it was little snippets and it was little fun graphics that were pretty. And that kind of gave me a little bit of a sense of peace in that, too, where it's, like, it's inviting and it's welcoming. and. It's also not drilling you with like all hard information, if that makes sense, because you can take it as slow as you'd like to take it. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: you can, if you're looking at someone's Instagram, you're seeing a square and you can click on one square. And then if it's like, okay, this is way too much, you can exit and remove yourself for a second and then come back to it when you can. Totally. But yeah, I think focusing on the practical elements, the gynecologist was a huge one that Mm -hmm. I had the same experience. No one told me that that was a thing. And I remember researching and also not realizing that you're supposed to get a pap smear if you are an assault victim, like to ensure that you didn't contract anything or to make sure that everything is safe, especially like HPV can be contracted really easily within assault settings. And I waited like three years. I, I had no idea. And, um, I remember making the appointment and I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. And then I thought about it and I started to have this anxiety about it. And I was like, I don't have doctor anxiety. Like, why am, why am I panicking here? Why am I feeling nervous? And then it hit me of like, oh, if, if I feel nervous having sex with someone and that's an anxiety for me, it makes sense that I would feel anxious about a stranger being all up in my business when that yeah, is totally. a definitely like that's a scary thing for me and I was violated in that way. And I actually also did like a little mini series on my personal page because it was something that, like you said, I just lived through and kind of had to fend for myself a little bit. And then you're like, and, whoa, I wasn't yeah, expecting this. Well, and I, I actually had a doctor that my initial primary care provider was highly religious. And I went in to get a pap smear and I wanted to get an STI test as well because I was sexually active and I was trying to be smart and safe. And she was really judgy. And the second that I was talking to her about it, about potentially making the appointment, her face dropped and her body language changed. And I was like, ooh, red flag, red flag, red flag. And so luckily I had been taught as a kid my whole life that doctors don't know everything and that I have autonomy when I'm in a doctor's office, that I get to make decisions for myself. And so I sat there and I was like, I don't want you to do my pap smear. And I found a different doctor and I researched like, what do you do if you're a sexual assault survivor and you have to go into the gynecologist? And I sat down with her and said, hi, I'm a sexual assault survivor. Can you please ask for consent before you do anything? Can you walk me through what you're doing? Can you verbalize it and narrate what's happening so that my brain knows what's occurring and knows that it's medical. And she was so kind and it w- it went really well. And luckily it went well. And that was because I just had kind of caught myself before I went through it. But a lot of the times you get to the doctor's office and then you're like,
1: Oh Freaking shit. Out. I
0: didn't I, know this was going to be scary.
1: Yeah. I almost um, always go to Planned Parenthood and they have such amazing training there um, and do a lot of practices around consent and making sure to talk you through the whole process. Um, So yeah, I've never gotten um, like one main gynecologist because I feel like, yeah, those, those, you know, issues that you ran into, I think are pretty common. Um, Yeah. And Planned Parenthood, it does a really great job of, making sure to be aware of people's different backgrounds and how they might be impacted by being in that situation.
0: Yeah, there's a level of trauma informed care, which I was just talking to someone about the fact that trauma informed care should be an across the board training, despite 100%. Literally doesn't matter what job you're doing. Everyone yeah. should be like trained in trauma informed care. But I'm I've been applying to jobs that uh deal with um working in the houseless population or working in social work, and things like that. And of course, there's a very significant emphasis on trauma-informed care in those settings. And I was just talking to someone and saying, you know, it's really fucked up that this isn't like an across-the-board thing, That not everyone. The fact that teachers often don't have trauma-informed care. Yeah, yeah. The fact that definitely. cops, like it's it's a very, and and that's something where, like you said, there are, you can look up articles and you can find bullet points of, you know, take deep breaths, which learning how to breathe, like changed my life. But then there are situations where you run into things. And I remember for me, um, even going into a class where I had a class and they started mm-hmm. talking about sexual assault. There was no warning. There was no heads up. There was no, right. Hey, we're going to get into this topic material. We just dove in and I'm sitting there in class where now I'm, I can't get up and leave because then everyone's going to know why I'm leaving. Yeah. But I didn't want to stay there. And I'm sitting there literally having to go like, <sighs> try to like breathe through it. Cause I'm like on the brink of a panic attack. And there are so many situations where there's no training for, and what I mean by that is like, you don't go through a sexual assault and then get a training class on how to live after <laughs> being assaulted. Yeah. You kind of just get thrown into the deep end. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the times that results in a lot of triggers, a lot of panic attacks, a lot of different things. Um, And I'd love to even kind of dive into that a little bit of just the after effects of assault. Because I think that there are the ones that are talked about in mainstream media, which, like you said, the conversations dr- drastically shifted after the Me Too movement. And that kind of stuff actually started getting talked about, which it hadn't really been discussed as much prior to that, at least not on like a mainstream platform. Yeah. But I guess let's dive into a little bit of that, of just what are the after effects and things that maybe people don't think of that actually do impact survivors, like things that you go through that people who haven't been through it, it doesn't go to the top of their brain.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think definitely what you were talking about with um, just have understanding trauma-informed care and trauma-informed languaging also. Um, I've had a lot of people, uh, we were doing online classes during the beginning of quarantine and I had a lot of people on who were like yoga practitioners or were teaching like meditation classes and they didn't understand trauma-informed languaging of like, you need to be more inviting. You need to like say, if you feel comfortable with this, please lay down or please like touch your heart or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that that's for people who are engaging in like mindfulness practices or mindfulness work, you just really never know who's going to be in the room. And I think it's important to under, for those types of people working in those positions, it's really important to, for there to be more resources on trauma-informed language.
0: Yeah. And, and I want think to create a safe, a safe, like a safe space as well, which yes, I think that yeah. language does that. And mm-hmm. if you've been through any type of violation of your privacy or your consent, safety's like the one thing that you're looking for in whatever context yeah. that might come.
1: And I think that like with the Me Too movement happening, it obviously just showed us so how many people are living with that experience, um, whereas so many people thought that they were living through that experience alone. And so now that we know that, I think it's important for people to take on that responsibility and recognize that most likely someone in any room is probably going to have been through an experience like that. Um, and that can just be like, I don't know, day-to-day living of understanding who might be around you and how you can be more, um, just understanding of the fact that people have lived through traumas that maybe you wouldn't be able to tell from just looking at someone.
0: Right. And I think that that's even often... I think two things are happening in the world right now where there's more education, more awareness and more conversation around trauma and traumatic experiences in general, whether that's talking about the trauma of racism and the fact that people who are not white have lived through that ongoing trauma, even just seeing it in the media. Mm -hmm. It's just like a constant, constant trauma or whether that's sexual assault or whether that's XYZ but then there's also this side of people saying like oh well I don't need to like cater my life to try to you know make everyone comfortable mm-hmm. and it, it really does come down to it's 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 not about catering your life to someone it's about genuinely just trying to have empathy and compassion towards humans now that you're understanding more about others uh, shared human experiences yeah and i think one of the biggest things is don't give your opinion on a human experience that you haven't had,
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. I was talking to someone we recently. There, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was talking to someone recently, and they were saying, "Oh, well, we've gotten too politically correct that it's almost like censorship of free speech." And I'm just like, "I don't know. I feel like speech before was just not very understanding of the multitude of experiences yeah. that are happening, and now it's just like." We're actually more inclusive now. Well, yeah,
0: and people who I hate the term politically correct because it's. I think there is a political correctness that is happening, but I think people are using like PC as like a blanket term for empathy.
1: And also, and like, like a bad, like a bad term. It's like, oh, yeah, oh it has so like PC. A, yeah, it's, it's like,
0: like I've never once heard PC be used in a positive. Yeah. like it always has negative connotations like tied to it it's and also
1: not necessarily inherently political like these things exactly. are human they're humanitarian they're, they're not they're actually not,
0: political <laughs> yeah, no they're not political at all and it's like if if you're i've had a hard time explaining that to people because i grew up in a very conservative environment where something and not to just shit on christianity but i'm gonna shit on christianity for a second um in Christianity, with my experience, I will put that, that little caveat, that asterisk in my experience. Um, it's a lot of looking at yourself and thinking about yourself. And I think it kind of is hidden under this light of, oh, but we want to take care of the world. And oh, but we want to help people. But the reality is, is you're taught at a very young age that you have all the knowledge in the world because you have this book of knowledge. You know more than an 80-year-old who has lived 80 years of life. You know more than them as a 10-year-old. And you have the right to walk up to that person and say, because you don't agree with me, you're going to hell. (laughs) Which is so drastic and so absurd. But that really instilled this pride complex in me from a very young age where it was just like, well, I have Jesus. So... I know everything. And, like, if you disagree with me, you're lost, you're broken, and it's sad. Mm-hmm. But I still have all the information. And once I started to unpack that, I think a lot of people in my circle who were still very in the Christian world, which I completely removed myself from, saw that, saw the empathy coming through. Where I, and one of the biggest things that triggered that empathy was my assault. It was like, I don't want anyone who hasn't been assaulted to ever try to tell me what this feels like because they do not know and they don't have that right to try to explain to me my personal experience. And I remember like going through that when I grew up in a very, like my church was very homophobic. And I remember I went through that and then started to think, okay, Well, if I don't want anyone to tell me my experience, maybe I shouldn't tell people how to love and maybe I shouldn't tell people how to exist. And maybe I shouldn't tell people how to yada, 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 like the laundry Mm. list of things that I had been telling people were right or wrong biblically. And I started to just develop more empathy for people and adjust my language and adjust the way that I spoke about things and adjust my levels of intentionality I've always been a very intentional person, but I was directing at at the wrong things. And so I started directing it at, you know, this political correctness, quote unquote, that was really Mm -hmm. just me being intentional about trying to be loving and empathetic and understanding towards people whose experiences I haven't lived. And that's the, that's the gist of it. It wasn't political. It was, I'm literally just trying to love people better and just be more understanding of their human experiences, because that's how I would want to be treated personally. And I yeah. kind of nitpicked like the things that the Bible that I liked, like the whole, like treat others as you'd like to be treated. I was like, I'll, I'll steal that. And that's also not entirely like a Bible thing that's in a lot of different cultures as well. But right. I was like, I'll snag that and take that with me. And I'll take, you know, love is above all other things. I'll take that with me. And I kind of formed this new, whichever all Christians are going to tell you, you're not supposed to do, you're not supposed to cherry pick, but Well, they cherry pick anyway. I was literally just going to say they love to cherry pick when it works for them. But when you're cherry picking for the sake of love and understanding, then it's not okay. (laughs) But um, yeah, so it's really not a political correctness thing. It truly is just, you're just working towards empathy, which I don't think should ever be seen as a negative
1: thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what um, yeah a lot of advocates and people are trying to do is just create a space where there can be more understanding, even if it's not a lived experience that you've been through.
0: Yeah. And even being able to uh, even relate on certain levels where it's like, if you've been through a really traumatic experience, maybe you haven't been through the same traumatic experience as someone else, but you can try to meet on a level where I don't know your exact experience, but I know that feeling when I see something that makes me just like, (sighs) inside and just kind of like shrivel up inside makes me feel really uncomfortable and really tense and now I'm anxious like I know that feeling I might not know exactly how it feels to be you but at least like I've got a little bit of common ground here and then use that to try to create a sense of empathy because
1: sometimes it is hard to be empathetic yeah. people and sometimes there I mean in that way I there's obviously a lot of times where I'm like damn, being an assault survivor is, like, terrible and sucks. And there's, like, so much shit that I had to work through to get to, like, where other people are at. Yeah. But at the same time, like, having to have worked through trauma has given me a huge ability to, yeah, just empathize with other people who have been through other completely different traumas. Exactly. That I don't know exactly what that experience is like, but at least to be... Um, Yeah, just understanding. It gives you kind of, I think, being a survivor of sexual assault, it gives you um, a window into being able to have love and compassion for other people who have had different experiences than your own.
0: Yeah. And I think I can give kind of a bird's eye view, too, because you know what it feels like to be the person who hadn't gone through the trauma and maybe not have as much empathy so, it can even give you empathy for people who maybe aren't that empathetic, where it's yeah. like, okay, well, I see that you haven't been through something that is super drastic or super traumatic, or at least we haven't talked about it. And maybe that's why there's a lack of empathy here. Mm-hmm. And even it's changed my conversations with people to be able to say, compared to getting coming at it from like an attacking lens, and I'm saying this very, I'm generalizing a lot here because there are certain situations where if you're just being hateful and shut up. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to sit there and be like, this is how I feel. Yeah. Um, But like, if it's a conversation where I actually, and I feel like I've gotten a decent gauge of when I feel like the conversation can actually go somewhere compared to where it is going to be just like a bottomless pit of like hatred and like, I'm going to get my feelings hurt and I'm going to get worked up and it's just not necessary. But I feel like I've been able to find conversations where it's like, I see that you might have a little bit of room for growth here. And I can see that you're a little bit open to learning. And so let's try to have a conversation that tries to take as much of the politics out of it and really does just focus on the human experience. Because that is something that we all share. We are humans and we are living. And so, Mm -hmm. like, at the very least, we have that. And my human experience is going to be different than yours. And that's not a political statement. That's we're all different humans and we're all going to have different experiences. And I think one of the things that's been very common in the past few years is people of the older generation comparing experiences and saying, oh, well I had it worse. And there is, I've gotten that a lot with sexual assault with conversations where it's like, Mm. well, at least you had therapy and Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, let's not shit on me for, for having therapy. Like, yeah. For like really trying to be a better thing. person. Yeah. Like that's a, that's lovely. And it's also like, compared to then getting in like a, whose dick is bigger. Like let's have a conversation about, I'm so sorry that you didn't have those resources. Like that must've been so hard for you. And I empathize with you completely. And I like do. can I give you a hug? Like, I'm so sorry that you weren't listened to and that you didn't weren't given a safe space Compared to, right. like, well, I had this, and you had this, and, blah, 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 and then you go down a rabbit trail where now you're literally, like, in a pissing contest for no reason whatsoever.
1: Yeah. And yeah, with Survivor's Toolbox, we've tried to, when before the pandemic, when we were doing more in-person um, events, we were creating dialogues and doing panel discussions for people who weren't survivors to be able to come and be, become informed about what that experience is and how to be an ally for survivors. Um, and I think it was, there are a lot of spaces now for people to share stories and be in therapy together. And I think it's a little, it, those spaces are super important but it was really important for us to be creating spaces where there could be dialogue between um, survivors and who people who would hopefully potentially become allies. Um, because I don't think that it's fair to just assume people who haven't been through that experience, like, don't want to know about it or they want to be shut off from it. There's a lot of, uh, I think, people, yeah, create a lot of, like, walls and barriers um between like i have this experience and you're never going to understand me um where instead we're trying to create a space where i've had this experience and i want to help you understand me so you can then be we can like have a better built community and relationship between each other
0: right and i think it's also um It is hard to understand an experience that you haven't been through. And it's also hard to even know the reality Mm -hmm. where you don't necessarily just want to walk up to someone and be like, you know, how bad was your trauma? Like, tell me about it. But it is hard to like actually get that education and to really understand the like deep, dark realities of someone's experience. Um, And it's even like, as an example, I remember I'm a very like, I feel feelings very hard. And I remember going to the Holocaust Museum as a kid. And the Holocaust had been something that you talk about. And it was so, it was such a uh, word that was used in a common context that the weight of the situation was not something that had actually resonated with me, if that makes sense. Where yeah. kind of almost the same as like the more that you talk about a school shooting, the less people cry about it. You know what I mean? We start to become desensitized to the severity of the situation. Yeah. And I remember then going to the Holocaust Museum as, like, a middle schooler. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I did not realize that it was this bad. And it just was something that I hadn't explored. And I, like, threw up multiple times in the museum. And I was hysterically Mm -hmm. crying. And I, like, couldn't deal. And... That's something that then going into adulthood, it was like, okay, well, I'm not, I've never experienced that. I don't know the generational trauma from that, but I can have empathy there because I do have a greater understanding than I had before because I tried to educate myself on the situation and learn more about the deep, dark realities of it. Even if those deep, dark realities were really, really, really hard to take and made me feel really icky and made me cry and made me feel really heavy for a few days or for a few weeks or whatever. It's important to expose yourself to things that are heavy and that are shitty to give yourself a better understanding of the reality of the situation. And I think that's happening a lot with racism as well right now, where people are finally doing the work and even like watching the films that are really hard to watch. And hmm, there's a weed whacker happening now. Um, But like watching those films are really hard to watch. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that because there is a level of discomfort and there is a level of, well, it's not my experience. I don't want to sit here and cry and feel uncomfortable or feel guilty or awkward or whatever. And I think men have that a lot when it comes to assault where there's kind of this like, oh, like I don't want to hear about this because – uh you know a lot of this was us (laughs) there's kind of just this like similar to like a white guilt thing where it's just like oh like I don't want to learn about this because it's uncomfy and it's it makes me feel icky and now I have to be aware of it and I think that's another one too where once you expose yourself to something you're exposed and now you have that in your brain
1: and I think there's also a misconception that healing is meant to be like this nice practice where you like do yoga and you feel really good and you meditate. And like my experience of healing has been that it's feels bad a lot of the time, like feeling getting to a point where you can feel better. It sucks. Does, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. And I think that not enough, I, I, it's becoming more of a comp like part of the conversation But I do think a lot of it is painted that it's going to, you know, be something that feels good and that it should feel good and that it should be done in a container that's like really comfortable. And yeah, I just think a lot of healing and a lot of social healing, like societal healing that needs to happen is going to take a lot of layers of discomfort and people need to start to accept that discomfort isn't this terrible thing like discomfort is okay it's okay to be uncomfortable and we've just been trained for so much of our lives to create comfort around us that it makes us want to shy away from those from uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable scenarios that we might put ourselves in and continue to be in environments like I think a lot of people want to continue to be in environments that help to maintain their levels of comfort and then it forces people who are victims to maintain in their like stay in their discomfort and that's not fair yeah no that's such a good point um yeah uh
0: healing sucks and i think healing sucks on like a grand level if you're talking about society and you're talking Mm -hmm. about these very systemic issues or on a personal level healing's not like It's not like a, oh, I'm going to sit here. And I'm not to, this is not to put down. I think I've had a lot of healing and a lot I've found. I'm actually, I'm going to correct that. I haven't had a lot of healing through meditation or through yoga or through crystals, but I found peace in that when my healing is too overwhelming. It's not as much that that's what's doing the healing. It's that it gives me a break from healing.
1: and It's like the mm, tools that we were talking about, having more tools in your toolbox.
0: Right. Or even like. Um, you know, like music can give you an escape from reality. And I think that a lot of the times I used yoga and meditation as a little bit of like a, so much of yoga is like, you know, you're trying to kind of sit there in a little bit of like a thoughtless state. And a lot of yoga teachers will say like, you're going to accept the thought that just popped into your head. You're going to acknowledge it. And then it's going to move on and mm-hmm. you don't need to fixate on it. And that didn't like do the healing for me. But when my brain was going a thousand miles a minute and I couldn't turn off my thoughts, that was a really helpful thing to like at least slow them down. Even if I couldn't entirely turn them off just to slow them down and to acknowledge them and then let them move on. But the healing in my opinion, my personal experience itself was a lot of being like down in the dirt, feeling really shitty, (laughs) like hysterically crying all the time. And like I used to have seizures because of my anxiety and it was like, it was really shitty. Like it, and it was, it was shitty, but it was, and it was even shittier because I could tell that I was learning <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. all of it. And I remember I would call my mom like once a week and be like, I don't want to grow anymore. Like I'm really done growing. And my mom would be, and I'd be sobbing and she's like, I know, like, I know, but like it'll, it'll slow down. Like, at some point, it's going to slow down. And I was like, it needs to slow down now. <laughs> like, I don't have any energy left for this because it was just like a constant. Um, So many things that and I th- I'm sure it's different for everybody, but I had packed so much in that I kind of opened the door to all of my trauma and it all kind of just came out in one large, like whoosh mm-hmm. and it had been there for like 19 years. And I was like, whoops, didn't mean to invite everyone back into the party at the same time. Yeah. Um, I know that feeling. Yeah. So it was like, it was a solid like two and a half years of like feeling really shitty, but it's also one of those things where it is a weird thing where you kind of look back on that and you're like, yeah, that was terrible but I'm also really glad that I finally unpacked it
1: yeah. because I feel
0: like I'm living a much more authentic life now and I feel more myself and I feel like I'm not under these 15 different layers of hidden trauma or of things that I've never processed through. I feel like I'm a way better communicator. I feel like I'm so much more empathetic. I've worked through so much of my pride And my fear of not being good enough. Like, I've worked through so much of that. And I like myself as a person a lot more now. It was terrible (laughs) to go through. Like, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. But I'm really glad that I at least processed through it. And it's not to say my healing is done. But I do think the bulk of my really shitty constant panic attacks phase mm-hmm. of that specific part of my healing journey of that specific trauma has kind of come to a close but yeah it's not fun and also no one kind of warns you about that because That's there not is kind of fun. this. yeah even in media you see someone like watch their brother getting like get hit by a car and then the next day they're like chilling and you're just like how, like, how is everyone so okay right now? And it just seems uh, media speeds everything up and it puts everything in a little fancy, nice box. But when you're going through it, you don't expect it to be this like kind of constant process of like having to relive things and having to process things. And my dog is like losing his mind. I'm in a very large house and there's like five (laughs) people in the house. There's two dogs. There's a lot going on, but yeah, and I also kind of wanted to touch a little bit on the Me Too movement mm-hmm. because it's very interesting that you got into this field before it was popular, if that makes sense, cuz it got a yeah. lot more popular after the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to mention specifically how have you worked through and then also how have you helped your community work through this specific um constant exposure to media covering trauma because Mm. it didn't used to be talked about. And then it went from not being talked about to being on every magazine and every article and Twitter and XYZ. And now all of a sudden, a lot of people who maybe hadn't processed through their trauma are just getting slapped in the face with trauma, like constantly. So how is that something you've navigated? And even how would you, what advice would you give to people? I know it's actually coming up again right now because of um, the death of the girl who was um, murdered by a police officer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conversation around not all men and um, the whole, like, did you get home safe conversation and Mm -hmm. something that um, a lot of people, just that paranoia of being terrified of something happening to you. And I know that that's coming up a lot right now. And I've seen a lot of people say, like, I'm really overwhelmed because this, this media is a lot. So kind of what would your advice be or what's your personal experience with that and how to exist when that's
1: happening? Hmm. I think that's a really good question. Um, and it's also hard to answer, (laughs) but, um, Like specifically when the Me Too movement happened, I think for me, I I had been work you know doing this work already, and I'd been talking about my story a lot. So I was a little bit in a place of I didn't feel overwhelmed by it. I felt like, oh my god, thank God I'm not the only person who's talking about my story now because I I had been um, doing that kind of work for a while. Um, And so it was, for me, it was a huge relief to finally feel that I wasn't the only voice out there and to feel that there was like this community of people who were, you know, a huge community of people who were able to share their stories and didn't have to hide their stories anymore. But I mean, I think a lot of that stuff that you're talking about comes from social media. um, And if, your if someone is feeling really overwhelmed by those conversations to like limit their time on social media um to to me the biggest part of my healing process has been to tell my story and to tell my story like over and over and over again until it didn't have the weight on it until i didn't feel like physically ill when I talked about my story. Um, So I, I think it's really important for people to be able to share their life experiences. And I also understand that that can bring up trauma for people. But then again, this is, we were talking about this before we started the recording, but about trigger warnings. And I've had I've been in conversations with people where I start to talk about my assault story and people getting really upset with me and saying, like, you should have let me know that you were going to start talking about that. And to me, that's not fair. Like, that's, I didn't ask for this. Like, that's not fair for you to ask me to censor my own lived experience. So I feel like it's a little bit the responsibility of the individual if they're feeling overwhelmed by media and social media to like take a break from that and take a step back and then maybe think about why that's why does that feel overwhelming you know like it sounds like if for me whenever something comes up for me I know that there's that there's pain there and there's still there's processing that needs to happen there so it's illuminating something that I need to work on and I have to take responsibility that I have to work on that Um, and I don't think it's always fair to put the, the responsibility on other victims and survivors who are at the point where they're able to tell their story to silence them because their story is too overwhelming.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting conversation and I'll be honest, it's not something that I've thought about, but I do think that trying to censor real-time conversations can be really tough. Yeah I think if you're if you're writing an article or you're um intentionally thinking about what you're going to say, what you're mm-hmm. going to write, and it's maybe strangers who are reading it that you don't know their life or their experience, then that's and even TV shows have been a huge one. Because if I start watching a TV show and I don't know there's gonna be a rape scene, I'm sitting there hanging out, just got home from work, I'm trying to diffuse, and then all of a sudden someone is getting raped on my screen. It ruins my night. <laughs> like, yeah, 100 it, it ruins my night. And so I think that there are there is importance to trying to be intentional about not kind of like bamboozling someone with that. Um, but I do think censoring real-time conversations is like really tough, and I think that there's especially if you don't know someone's experience, like if you're talking to someone and you know that sexual assault is a really sensitive topic for them and you're aware of that and there's someone in your life that you care about and they've told you that intentionally like talking about it and not giving them a heads up, I think is like a little sketch. And I think that that can be something even where you can show your love towards them to, sh- to kind of show I'm being intentional and I-, I know your background, but if you don't know that that's someone's trigger point, and you're at a spot where sharing your story is liberating for you, trying to then shut someone down and specifically getting frustrated at them versus saying, like you said, removing yourself from the situation. If you, if, if someone's talking to you and they start talking about an assault, and maybe that's really sensitive for you, and maybe you're not at a spot where you feel comfortable sharing your story and you're not at that healing process or that healing point yet, which is fine. Maybe removing yourself from the conversation and just saying, hey, I appreciate your story. I'm so proud of you that you're in a space where you feel like you can share it. But I'm not in a space where I can hear it. But I support you and I love you. But I need to check out for a second here compared to like, how dare you tell me your story? Because it's like, it's also an honor for someone to feel comfortable enough with you to share their story. Because I'm similar to you in the sense that I kind of went, in like hard in the paint, just like, I'm gonna mm-hmm. share my story with everybody because then it'll lose its like sensitivity a little bit for me. And maybe the more I talk about it, the less I'll cringe. And I went too far in. I like fucking a month or what, like a, a, six months after, I like got on a stage and talked about it. And I was like, wow. oh fuck, we went. <laughs> this was too far. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this. Um, but I like I, I was I was the same where it was just like, okay, I just need to like tell it as many times as possible. And it was that the more I told it, the the more comfortable I felt with it. And the less I got this kind of like uh, feeling when I would tell it, which was also liberating for me because it was just like, I can tell it and I can help other people potentially, or I can find a common shared space with someone. And I'm not giving my abuser power in that. It's not something that's sitting in silence or that's like hidden. It's something that I'm talking about. And I remember... On my personal page, I don't do this publicly because I'm not trying to get sued, but um, the first time I named him Mm -hmm. on my personal page was, like, huge for me because I'd always protected him. And it wasn't just that I was nervous about saying his name. I was trying to protect him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want him to get the brunt of negative criticism, which is such bullshit. But I was just like, oh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to hurt his feelings, which is so dumb, but yeah, it's something where I do think you, we talked about this a little bit before the recording started, but the word trigger has been vastly overused at this point where, um, I remember I was having a conversation with someone where I was just sharing my opinion about something and it was political, but it wasn't like a triggering thing. And they were like, that was triggering to me. And I was like, false. You disagreed with me (laughs) and the topic pissed you off. That is not the same thing. Um, And so I think that just in general, even if you're listening and you're not a, a trauma survivor in general, and you have not experienced PTSD or triggers, and I mean, really experience them where you see something, you hear something, you feel something, you smell something, and your body has a visceral reaction. Try not to use that word so, so, uh, flagrantly because it's, it, it, in my opinion, it actually is a little bit offensive to me where someone's like, I even heard someone say like a certain like food that has nothing to do with their trauma, but like, Oh my God, like the taste of like this, like triggers me. And I'm like, no, it does not. Like, Please don't say that because on my end, if I smell dove cucumber deodorant, I'm having a seizure. Like it's like, so like, let's not like, so I think there's, there should be caution there. And also like, if you're going to be putting trigger warnings on things, do it intentionally and with the motive of trying to, um, Spare people emotional pain. You don't, you don't want to put someone in a space where they're now truly feeling triggered and they didn't have any warning and they didn't mean to step into this space. But then simultaneously, if if someone is, if you're in a real time conversation with someone, sometimes topics come up. And mm-hmm. I think it is your responsibility to have that awareness of yourself and to be respectful of other people and to just say, you know, I might need to step away from this. And to also do that in the most loving way you possibly can. Because I don't know about you, but my experience with telling my story, anytime anyone says like, oh, that was too much for me. I'm like, I'm going to go hide in a hole forever because now I feel gross and I feel icky that I shared it with you and I feel like I shared too much of myself or now I'm a burden. Also, just don't use the word too much to people. It's just yeah. fucking mean. Use something else. Yeah. But compared to, you know what? I love you. I so support you in this. And if you don't love them, then maybe don't say that. But like, you know, you know, gauge the gauge situation. Um, I support you. I want to be there for you. I want to encourage you and kind of hold you up in this. I just am not in a space where I can hear it. And I've had people say that. I've had people unfollow me on Instagram and then message me and say, I love what you're doing. I just cannot see constant posts about sexual assault right now. And then I, then I see that I go from being like, why did they unfollow me? Mm-hmm. To being like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you for being aware of that. And having that self-awareness to be able to remove yourself from that space. Like that's such a good skill to have. Good for you. I take no offense to that. I'm <laughs> like, please take care of yourself. Like, that's completely appropriate. Yeah. And there is a fine line to that. But I think it's self-awareness is a hard thing just in general. And it's also something that I feel like isn't really taught as a kid. <laughs> you yeah, get a, you're get us—you an adult and you're like, oh, shit, I have no self-awareness. <laughs>
1: now I and have even, to learn this. Yeah. And just even being able to communicate those things, I think it does take time because people feel – people might – Be, you know, looking at your social media posts and be like, oh, I'm feeling like a lot of emotions. I don't even really know why, but I'm just going to delete this person instead of trying to, like, think for themselves about why they're feeling that way and then communicate them with other people.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I
1: think there's a lot of.
0: It takes a lot to be able to. Learn what your emotions mean. And what feeling that like, oh, I just felt uh, my, my palms started sweating when you just said that. Why did they just start doing that and try to dissect that, which um, I'll actually make a note for this episode, but I will post a uh, feelings chart, <laughs> which is like my favorite worksheet that's ever existed in the history of worksheets. And it's a human body and you get to color with crayons, which is always fun. Uh, where you feel certain feelings. Mm. It's walking through your body of, oh, I feel anger in my chest. Oh, I feel... And a lot of times you've never thought about that. And once you sit down and you're intentional about it and you start being mindful of where your emotions are and where they sit in your body, it gives you so much more self-awareness for even in a triggering situation. Okay. I just heard this song. Why is my heart racing? Like, why am I now feeling really tense? And you start then, if you already have that knowledge and you've already worked through, oh, I feel fear in my heart, then you can potentially start to say, okay, maybe I'm fearful. Why am I fearful? Because a lot of times you don't know why things trigger you. And that's another really tricky part about triggers. You'll smell a smell and you're like, holy shit, I'm going to die. And you have no idea why you feel that way. Um, which is something else that helped me in my process, which this is something that can take a lot of emotional weight. And sometimes it's something that you have to do over months of time, but sitting down and trying to make a list of your triggers and try to list them out mm-hmm. and think of as many as you possibly can. And even you can, I rated them in severity because they're not always the same level of intensity. Right. And I shared that with people in my life. The closest people to me, I gave them a big ass list and was like, here are things that are really intense for me. This doesn't mean that you have to completely adjust your life to remove these things for my comfort. But if the song take on me comes on and I start losing my shit, this is why, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I hate that that song's a trigger for me because now it's really popular and it's all over TikTok and shit. I hate that. It's everywhere. Um, but yeah, it, it, I've even had situations, songs are a big one for me and I've had, um, I've been at a party with a friend and they knew that it was a trigger for me and I was in a space where I could communicate it, but the song came on and I froze and I was a deer in the headlights and my friend looked over and was like, oh shit, it's this song. Immediately walked over and was like, would you mind just changing the song really quick? Like my friend is just like it, like, would you just, is that okay? And they were like, oh yeah, that's fine. And they changed it. And then it was like, and I wasn't in a space where I could do that for myself
1: in that moment. But I had someone who could advocate for me. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, I think that that's a great practice to have. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier too, with like taking responsibility and ownership of your experience, I think is really important because I feel like a lot of people ask other people to take responsibility for their experience. Um, so I think, yeah, to be able to have the awareness of what impacts you and 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 know that and be able to be aware of what what kind of support you do need, because it is, I think, on the individual to be able to communicate those things.
0: Yeah, and that helps eliminate codependency as well, because it's so easy when you're in a traumatic um state of mind to develop these like trauma bonds with people and get into these really codependent relationships where instead of processing through your trauma on your own someone Mm -hmm. else is processing through it for you and kind of like handing it off to you and that sucks and as someone who did that for like a year and a half after my assault I suggest not doing it it makes everything (laughs) way more difficult because then you basically have to go through it twice where someone else processes it, like, for you, you get used to that person handling all of your trauma.
1: They, and then they can't leave handle And it. then you freak
0: out. Well, yeah, and they – it's too much to put on someone also. Like, that's way too much. And then they leave and you're like, oh, shit, I don't know how to handle anything. And you have to go through it all again of relearning how to handle it yourself. And I remember when my person left – I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> I can't handle any of this on my own. But I would never had a panic attack by myself. And I had my mm-hmm. first panic attack by myself after he left. And I was like, oh, I'm going to die. Because I'd always had someone there to work through it with me and to talk me out of it and to hand me my meds and like all these different things. Mm-hmm. But then I went from that to being by myself. And I was like, I have no independence in this. Like I have not learned how to be autonomous with my own trauma at all. I had given it all to somebody else, which created it, It's that's toxic in general, but I had given it to someone else. And then when I was left on my own to face my own trauma, I had no tools. My tool was another person. Yeah. Which is scary because once again, people don't always stick around forever. And it's also a lot to put on someone. And I think it's unfair to, like you said, it's unfair to expect other people to hold that. And I don't mean to hold it for you in the sense of having a community is so important. And I think that there are people that can come into your life and hold it for a moment. But if you're putting all of it on them and you're asking them to hold it all the time, you're now just like handing your trauma off to someone else. Which if you don't want your trauma... (laughs) other people probably also don't want your trauma. Yeah. Unfortunately you
1: got to do it on your own. Yeah.
0: Which is shitty. It's shitty. That's, it's not fun. And I, I wish that that was not the way that it was. Um, well we only have a few minutes left here, but I wanted to also chat a little bit about assault in the BIPOC POC community. We talked a little bit about it before the recording started, but, um, I know that that's something that you advocate for on your personal page and trying to have a lens of education and a lens of allyship. But I wanted to kind of talk about that and um, maybe even some of the differences and some of the, there's a lot of mental health care disparities and a lot of um, privileges that white survivors have that survivors of color don't have. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to kind of give you a space to chat about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um disclaimer on this I'm a white person. Yes. So I don't know the I don't know what it is like to be a black survivor of assault. Um but with survivors toolbox we really do take we take a lot of time to center the giving resources for um black survivors and That's been a really important part of our messaging and the resources that we offer. And I am personally often in complete awe of the black advocates that I follow. I think the healing work that is happening in the black community and the, the resources that are offered there, I think are just really, really incredible. And I'm, oftentimes so inspired by the work that ad- black advocates and activists are doing so I always just want to highlight what it is they're offering because it is such an important part of the conversation and I think a little bit kind of what we were talking about earlier unless you've you can have empathy for someone else's experience but unless you've actually been through it you um, you just don't know what that experience is. So um I we work really hard in Survivors Toolbox to uplift black the voices of um black survivors, advocates and activists and I think potentially there are a lot of people a lot of advocates and activists that are white that are afraid of of highlighting that I um Oftentimes people contact me thinking that I am a black person and just because of how we do use our platform. And so I do think that um, among white advocates and activists, there's often maybe a fear of feeling like they can't speak to a black experience, Um, but it is really important. You don't have to speak to an experience to be able to advocate for um, people who have been through that experience. And I think um, that's sh- that's true of uh, for um, any kind of oppressed community. It's really important for there to be allies who can claim the fact that they're not oppressed in the same way, but that they can still offer help and resources and allyship. And it's super important for people to who are in communities of oppressors to help communities that are oppressed and I think that that goes for um, victims of sexual assault it goes for uh, when we we're talking about racism there's so many different avenues that allyship is important and I think definitely within um, the field of of advocacy it's Uh, It's a main part of the conversation that needs to be had because the Black female communities are so often impacted more by this, by sexual assault than white communities are. And it shouldn't just be on the responsibility of black women to make sure that they're being supported through that experience. Yeah, for sure. And I think even as a white
0: survivor, I've, I've experienced the trauma of sexual assault, but I haven't experienced the trauma of sexual assault as a black individual. And I think that it's important to, even though that people who haven't been assaulted might have privilege over me, in regards to like that, I have privilege over black community. And that's important for even in my trauma to try to use that privilege in any possible way that I can. And a lot of that is advocating for individuals, even for advocating for like healthcare resources and trying to spread that uh, message and provide resources and, um, I've even seen especially in the last few months which has made my heart so wildly happy, specific therapy sessions that may even be funded. There are some that have been funded by white uh individuals or like white-based companies that are hiring black women as therapists to give free therapy sessions for survivors. And it's very specific of like we might be using our money and our influence here, but we're using that to pass the mic off over to black individuals and then to still help within the black community. Um, Mm -hmm. and I will also post some resources. Um, there are some really, really, really great therapy groups that are based in black communities that have either free therapy sessions, discounted therapy sessions, um, free, um, like specific yoga sessions or, um, classes on how to rest and different things that are really great resources. If you don't have access to healthcare or if you don't have the finances to spend money in healthcare, because a lot of the times maybe you have insurance, but you don't have the money to be paying your copay. which that's another whole conversation about Mm -hmm. healthcare, but um, I will post some free or discounted resources. And then um, I'll also uh, try to post some, just kind of tools that you can pop in your toolbox um, and try to kind of have on hand because I'll be honest, therapy has been lovely throughout my healing experience, but I'm a worksheet gal. And so (laughs) most of my healing has been through worksheets um, and coloring those worksheets. Um, And I have like, that's half of my computer. is like hundreds of worksheets that I've saved that I like. So I will post some of those for sure. But um, that's great. They're fun and they make Mm -hmm. you feel like you're in elementary school and that (laughs) kind of sometimes even can lessen the heaviness of the topic. If it's like a really heavy topic, but you're coloring about it, then it's like, okay, it's not as scary. (laughs) Um, But yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I feel like this will be a helpful conversation and also potentially a really relatable conversation for people. Um, But I want to give you a chance to plug anything that you'd like to plug your social media. If you have anything aside from Survivor's Toolbox
1: that you'd like to chat about, um, the platform is yours. Totally. Thank you. Um, yeah. So if you want to follow more of my work, you can go onto Instagram at Survivor's Toolbox. We also have, um, a really awesome website at SurvivorsToolbox.org where we um, are sharing different episodes about different issues that survivors might face in the aftermath of an assault. It's a short web series that we're continuing to build off of. Right now, we have an episode up about uh, tools for dealing with uh, triggering situations, um, which talk about it talks about breath work and body scans and different tools that you can just use in an everyday situation. And we'll, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be releasing soon an episode about what to expect if you decide to go to the police. And we also will be soon uploading some really helpful PDFs onto our website. So just a lot of really great resources um, that'll be continuing to expand over the next year. And so if you're needing anything in particular or looking for some extra help, after an assault, um, or know someone who's also going through an experience like that, definitely check out the Instagram or the website and hopefully you can find some helpful information on there. Awesome. Well,
0: as always, I will post all that in the show notes so that that is accessible to people. And then I will tag Dallas in our Instagram so that you guys, um, can access their platform as well. Um, but that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review if you'd like. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at SarafinaBlog and visit us online at seraphinablog.com. To end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. We will see you next week. Thank <music> you.